Dear Jesus, you came and entered our frail human flesh in order to be our brother, to make us your own, and uh, Lord, so that you could be a, a sympathetic high priest on our behalf. We pray, Lord, as we are studying this marvelous book of Hebrews, that you give us a deeper appreciation for your incarnation, and also that we would feel um, emboldened and equipped to come before you in prayer and to go before our neighbor with proclamation of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to pick up in the latter half of chapter 2 and then hopefully get into chapter 3, time permitting. But as we do, starting out, uh, this text is going to be talking about building. And if you're building a house, as some of you have, as you know, my family is trying to, slowly but surely, what are some of the th factors that you need to take into consideration? If you're building a house, what, what do you have to, to think about? What are some of the different things you're, you're looking at? How much room you need. How much room you need. Okay, good. Cost. Cost, yes, absolutely. What's it going to cost? What's the budget? Yeah, Tom. Where you put the foundation. Where you put the foundation. And is the foundation going to be solid and secure? The yeah. builder. Who's the builder? Right. This is a really important point. Who's the builder? You can have all the great ideas in the world. If you don't have somebody who's capable and competent. Yeah. Architect. Yeah, and have the architect too, right? The builder, you don't want to just say builder, all right, go at it. But an architect who can plan it. Yeah, Court. <laughs> Wait, you don't want to build in the swamp? Well, I don't think it's frowned upon. Yeah. Yes, right. Or nor on the sand. I, but, but I feel like there's the something in the Bible. The only place to build around here is on sand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy. Uh, you want to check your neighbors. Make sure you got good ones. Oh, check your neighbors. Make sure you got good. Ones. What if you're related to them? Again, make sure you got good ones. You know, it goes hand in hand. Yeah. Anything else? You're building house factors you want to consider. Your painting contract. Yeah, okay, your painting contract. <laughs> yeah, there he is, right there. Well, there's all these different things, and I find it interesting as we will think about how the, the church, the congregation of Christ, is God's house. How many of these things that you talked about also apply and maybe have some relevancy when we think about what it means for Christ to be the master builder, the architect tongue, <laughs> the one who um, sheds his own blood at the cost of claiming uh, us as his house. It's a beautiful thought. We'll get there. But first, let's ask this question of why he even became man. And so we're picking up in verse 14. As I said last week, this section is perhaps the most comprehensive section in the New Testament to answer precisely that question. Whence the incarnation? Why did God become man? So we're at verse 14. Let me read to the end of the chapter there. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. All right, stop there. Uh, if you look at this text, this section is answering this question, why did God become a man? It lifts up for us uh, no less than four reasons why. So let's walk through this as a way of walking through this text. And please stop me if you have questions or clarifications along the way. The first reason that it tells us in Hebrews here that Jesus became man, it says God became man to disempower the devil, 
to disempower the devil, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, this is something that maybe we just kind of assume, but it's right there at the forefront, the purpose of our Savior's coming. He came to, to restore his good creation, which has been, as C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity, enemy-occupied territory, right? That's a way to, to think about our world. It's under the, the sway of the evil one. Jesus calls him even uh, the, the, what does he call him? The God of this world, I believe he says. He's the prince of the power of the air, St. Paul says. We don't want to give short shrift to the influence that the evil one has in our world still to this day. But Jesus came to disempower him, to cut the legs out right from under him. In Revelation, we get this uh, powerful, evocative picture of what this looks like in Revelation chapter 12. We looked at this text a few weeks ago for another reason, but um, just to allude to it here and focus on verse 9 of Revelation 12. It says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, in Revelation then, goes on to lament, Woe to you, O earth! Because now you have, as Peter puts it, this prowling lion who's coming around, right? And he's angry. He knows that his final defeat is imminent. And so what's he doing? Is he just going and licking his wounds? No, he's redoubling his efforts to try and just take out everyone he can. You might think of it like this. He, he's like the resentful man on board of the Titanic. And he knows that he's the one who is going to be going down with the ship. And so rather than helping anybody into the lifeboat, what's he trying to do? Pull as many people down with him as he goes. That's the, that's the MO of the evil one. He's like Putin. Well, perhaps so. <laughs> perhaps so. And it, uh, John picks up on this in 1 John 3. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. It's unequivocal. Right? He is, uh, the devil is the deceiver, he is the accuser, and Jesus came to undermine and to undo his works in the world. Now, let's go on to what is that, that principal work that he does, but before I do, just thoughts or reflections about the works of the devil in the world, the ways that he operates. Let me ask you this. Is it apparent, is it always apparent where the devil is operative and what he's up to in the world. How does he like to appear instead? As an angel of light. As an angel of light. Scripture says he masquerades as an angel of light. It's easy to point fingers at particularly evil personages in our world and say, look, there's, there's the devil incarnate, and maybe so, right? But more often than not, he looks so nice, so alluring and appealing with just, oh, a little bit of falsehood thrown in, just a, a, a little bit of half-truth to undermine the minds of the faithful. Got to keep that in mind. He's not manifestly evil many times, but uh, secretly and subtly so. So, Bob, you look like you've got your, your thinking. Well, I, I, um, maybe I'm a little whacked right now, but I really think the profound distortion taking place in our country where every line that our Lord drew in creation is being intentionally blurred. Sure. Man and yep. woman, uh, animal and human, sure. human and God. Yep. Every, every 
essential line in the universe from which everything holds together are being intentionally blurred. Yeah. I can't help but think it's demonic. Well, and he's called the deceiver, and I think along those same lines we call him the confuser. Uh, the confusions that are happening, especially in our contemporary Western culture, bear very much the mark of the evil one, I think. Yeah. Go ahead, Dan. I think what Jesus really makes clear in John 10 is, is mm. very much described here. Who yes. Is he? he has come to steal, right. kill, and destroy. Yes. That kind of is like, my aim is to annihilate. Yes. My, he, he, the devil comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Right. It's scorched earth. Um, this is what was so chilling uh, a number of years back when um, The Dark Knight came out, the, the, one of the Batman movies. Because so many times with movies when you've got a villain, it comes down to, oh, he just wants some power. Or he's, he's after some money. And you kind of get the backstory. Sometimes you see this move a lot nowadays. Um, we get these origin stories that help us to, to sympathize and say, oh, evil's really not that bad, right? Don't be all, all in, a, in a huss about that. Uh, but in that movie, The Dark Knight, I remember coming away just utterly chilled by it. No Country for Old Men does this also. The um, uh, Cormac McCarthy book and the movie of the same. I'm, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. And why is that? Because in both those cases, the villain, the Joker in The Dark Knight, and then I forget what the guy's name is in No Country for Old Men, but in both cases, it's clear that they are interested in evil, pardon the phrase, just for the hell of it, right? And that's, I mean, that's, that's right on, on point with it. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He, that's, his, that's his modus operandi. That's what he's after, see? Uh, if we don't recognize that, if we think, as I said a few weeks ago, if you, anyone who dines with the devil better use a long spoon, right? So if you think, oh, maybe I can have a little dalliance with the evil one, not so fast. That's why he comes. Yeah, George. I, th I think sometimes he's very insidious. Insidious is a good word. That's right. And getting into the churches. Sure, yeah. Not, not, not necessarily the Lutheran church, but other... No, of course, not the Missouri Synod, but other churches. <laughs> They're okay. Well, I'll tell you this, George. If we think that our uh, Lutheran church, Missouri Synod, is faithful to the teaching of the scriptures, and I believe that it is, we have all the more reason to suspect and to be on guard for the insinuations and the insidious work of the evil one. Because he couldn't care less for those who are just rampantly running off into heresy and are fleeing away from the truth of God's word. They're already, they're, they're well on their way off the cliff. He's like, ah, my work there is done. But as for those who would seek to uphold the scriptures and be faithful to it, that's where he's still going to work. Jake, you get your, oh, okay, sorry. That's all right. Yeah, Rudin. It's amazing that most of its power comes as a deceiver, though. Yeah. And it's like, he's got nothing there. He just. He's got he, nothing there. He convinces us that he does. That's, this is true. And yeah. this is, uh, St. Augustine said that evil has no substance to itself. It can only be a corruption and a perversion of the truth, right? It's parasitic. It just wants to, to um, you know, piggyback on the good and turn it bad. That's the way he works. Let's go to the second point then, because it follows fast on the heels of this. So God became man to disempower the devil and with that to deliver humanity from the fear of death. See, so the one who has the power of the death, that is the devil, deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. So this is the way that the evil one is able to have this power because when our hearts are filled with fear of death, then he has us right where he wants us, right? 
Because it's when people are um, enthralled to the fear of death that they will make decisions and, and sacrifices, that they will um, do things contrary to what they, their conscience says, what they know is truth, simply out of fear of death. What we have in Christ is this liberation from that slavery, that now we don't have to live in slavery to the fear of death, and so we're able to go forth in boldness and confidence. Now, does that mean that we're reckless, that we're silly, that we're, we're crazy, because well, I don't have to be afraid of death, and so seatbelts, blah! That's not the point, right? We still use sanctified common sense as believers. But it does mean that we don't live in thrall to the fear of death, and there's a difference. Jesus has swallowed that swallower. Isaiah 25, this reading is often on Easter Sunday for good reason. Both of these readings here under number two. He'll swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. In the um, uh, ancient pagan religions, death was personified as muth from the, the Hebrew or Semitic root, maveth, which is the word for death. And Muth, the way, what he would do is he would swallow people in that kind of um, ancient mythological picture. Muth, the embodiment, personification of death, swallowed people up. And so what does God do? He swallows the swallower, right? Now he gobbles up death. So that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? How do you see this kind of fear, this slavery to the fear of death impacting people and affecting even their kind of decision-making, the way that you know, we'll, we'll go about in our day-to-day -day lives because it still impacts us? Yeah. Well, TV advertisement is all yeah. based on fear. No, like, uh, you got to rephrase that. Fear or fear of death or sex. That's the other thing. Well, yeah. I had advertising 101 at Michigan State. Oh. That's what he told us straight yeah. away. Yeah. He said every ad comes down to two things, fear of death or sex. So there you go. But um, yeah, I mean, it, a lot of that, right? Oh, are you, are you looking a little bit old? Yeah. We all know what's behind that. Well, here, we have the miracle product to erase that, those signs of impending doom. Oh, okay, I guess I'll buy that. Yeah. yeah. Other ways that you see this kind of um, operative in our world today. Anxiety. Just the anxiety. The world is so filled with anxiety. It's yes. like they live every day anxious about either not doing well enough or not being enough or not having enough right. or not uh, everything has anxiety. Yes. And perhaps you heard this a, a couple of weeks ago. We heard um, news that um, I, I don't know if it was from the Surgeon General's office or what, which office of the government was saying, now uh, all Americans really ought to be tested, all Americans ought to be tested for anxiety. I forget what age it started at, but it was in like as a teenage age, all the way up through adulthood. And guess what we're going to find out? Everybody's anxious. <laughs> Teenagers even more so than adults. Teenagers even more so. Yeah. In many ways. Yeah. This slavery to the fear of death is constantly suffusing our world. We're not immune to it. But when we are able to recognize it and to see that this is what Satan is up to, we're able to have some measure of insulation from it because we can return to the Lord who has the victory over death in the grave. So it's not something for us to, to live in, in mortal fear of. Yeah. 
Uh, this particular section in Hebrews, though, is like John 3.16 to the people we served in the Philippines. Okay, Their say more. whole world and culture was surrounded yep. about how to appease the spiritual world for yep. fear of death. Yep. I mean, everything down to how they tied the knots on the bundles of grass on their roof. It yes. was amazing. Yes. And when they read this for the first time, <gasps> it was incredible. Liberating. To be set free from how Satan controlled every little piece of their lives. Yes. And it wasn't demonic in that sense. It was sure. just this profound. And he came to them in dreams and visions and sicknesses yeah. in all sorts of ways. Yeah. But it was always the same thing. How do you pay the devil off? How do you pay the devil off because of that, of the death, of death in the grave? And I mentioned in, in the Inklings this week about how, of course, we're a couple of weeks out from Halloween. And Halloween just has this weird cast in our culture where now for some people it is like this weird delight in darkness, right? But I suggested in that Inklings, and you're free to disagree with me on this, but I think it's an opportunity for us as believers instead to taunt the evil one and that now, just as Paul does here, that now we fear not death and the grave. What if instead you were, put, you were to put your RIP out in front and along with it, you know, put some flowers or some, you know, some crosses or, you know, have it be bright, have pastel colors rather than dark ones. That would be, that would throw people off, right? Like, man, that house is really scary. Um, but we need to remember even that phrase, RIP, ooh, it has Christian underpinnings. What does it stand for? Rest, Rest in peace. peace. Well, listen, if apart from Christ, Ain't nobody resting in peace, right? Uh, but because of what Jesus has done, now there has been this Christian transformation of the grave so that now we don't look at it at the, this awful time when now we are, are going down into the depths never to rise again, where we are not going to rest in peace, but instead we're going to be unsettled in war ever after. Now, because of what Jesus has done, it's a sleep. It's the greatest sleep ever until the day when our Lord comes again and gently shakes us on the shoulder and says, Arise, come follow me out of the coffin and up into life eternity. It's a total transformation. And even the, the terminology, the nomenclature, before the time of Christ in the ancient world, and perhaps still in some places today, they would refer to the burial places as a necropolis, mm -hmm. literally a dead city. That's what they call it. Now we call it a cemetery, which means what? A sleeping place. That's what Jesus has done. He's turned the necropolis into a cemetery. We need not live in that fear today more. Yeah, Ruta. There was one of the speakers at Arcadia this summer who said, death brings us freedom. It's the ultimate freedom. We're finally free from sin and everything else. Right, it's been, it's been turned about. Now we, yeah, we await the... We never, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. We're I, absolutely I, free now. We are free and awaiting the coming of our yeah, king right. and the resurrection. That's exactly right. So this is what Jesus has done. This is why God became man, to disempower the devil, to deliver humanity from the fear of death. And then thirdly, to serve as our merciful high priest. This is the big theme that uh, the preacher in Hebrews is going to pick up over and over again. We'll see it again in the, the latter half of this section even. But to serve as our merciful high priest. And I alluded to this um, passage from 1 John in the sermon today. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, 
And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So God became man so that now Jesus is able to be our advocate. The one who comes before the throne of the Father and appeals and advocates on our behalf. Right? He is the one is the propitiation, and that's a, a real $5 theological term there, but it, it means to set aside the, the just wrath of the Father in order that now we are in a place of peace and reconciliation before him. Right? It's that sacrifice, sacrifice that extinguishes wrath. Now the fire has been put out, and we live in perfect peace before God. The fourth reason that God became man then, and this is kind of the bottom line, for this, this section. God became man to help us, to sympathize with us, to be with us in our trials. 2 verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He's going to pick up on this theme again in chapter 4, but it'll bear repeating. God became man so that now he is not just some distant, far-off God, but he is truly able to sympathize, to suffer with us. That's who our Savior is. He's come down into our flesh to be not only our Lord, but also our brother. To stand beside us in our weakness, to lift us up. That's the, that's the Savior that we need. And again, this was in stark contrast to certainly the way the Greeks viewed their pantheon. Zeus is up there in his heavens. He's atop Mount Olympus, and he couldn't care less what happens to the humans down on the earth. And even, I think, a, a view of God apart from, I mean, sometimes there's this way too neat and easy view of the Old Testament, mean God, New Testament, nice God. That is emphatically not the picture that we get in the scriptures. But I would say that apart from the fullness of God's revelation as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you still can't see the, the fullness of his sympathetic, empathetic love. By seeing God as Trinity, now we recognize our loving Father who has revealed his heart in his Son for us. See? Yeah, Ellen. Um, he relates to us. He relates to us, yeah. And now we can have relationships. That's right. We're through that relating. Yes. That's what's so yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, a, that's a, a good word to use. He relates to us. Now, in this spiritual sense, he is our brother, right? Christ is our brother, but he relates to us, and relationally now, he's able to dwell beside us. We're able to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, our Father, because Jesus, our brother, has come and adopted us into the family of God. He's the true Son of God. He's the Son of God by nature. You and I are his sons and daughters by grace, so that we're able to pray, our Father, because we are brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus. Other reflections or comments about this sympathetic love of our Savior is able to help us in our trials. This is why God becomes man, guys. So, yeah. so many times you hear people say, you can't understand me. You haven't been through oh, this. Yeah, right. And Jesus has come through Yes, this. that's a great point, Hans. You know, we'll, we'll say that, and th there's some truth to it, right? You can't, you can't understand me. You haven't been through what I've been through. You haven't walked in my shoes. If you had, you would, you would get it. Jesus truly has walked in our shoes, right? He truly has come among us. Yeah, this is exactly right. So that he would understand our woes from the inside out and then be able to bring them before the Father as our merciful high priest. Okay, so thus chapter 2. And now in chapter 3, this is where the preacher, I've said this before, this is in all likelihood a sermon. It's a long sermon. It's a long sermon. <laughs> 
because really only with chapter 3 now is he going to get to the heart of the matter. Really, all of this up to this point was all kind of part of his run-up and his prologue. And now in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to give us this uh, first real imperative and hinge point. He's going to say, this is the, the focus. This is where I, I want you guys to look. And that's okay. Um, so chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, he's pivoting now, okay? In view of what, all that's come before, now here's what I have to say. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heav- heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. I want to just share with you um, the, the Greek of Hebrews, I've said before, is just so beautiful. It's so intricate. And here in this First verse, the the translation is fine here, but it doesn't capture. I'm going to try and just give you a wooden translation of it because um, we see just how uh, artful he is here. He says, therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. He saves the name of our Savior for the very last word in the sentence as this kind of great punch, not like a, a gut punch, but instead as it's like, bow, consider Jesus. And consider is, is kind of a, a weak translation there. It's look carefully, behold, put before your eyes, and imaginatively behold him, cherish, relish the visage of your Savior. Imaginatively behold him. And I put for you uh, perhaps the best known painting of Jesus. Um, this has apparently sold more than a half a billion copies. It's in churches throughout the world. It's famous on I-75 coming up from my parents' house. You guys know that one? The Dixie Baptist Church, 50 feet tall. Are you on the right road? Our Lord is asking. You see this picture? I love it. Um, but I think <clears throat> this, this was a debate actually among Christians for a number of centuries. Is it appropriate to have icons, images, pictures of the Savior. Is this what Jesus actually looks like? Maybe. Perhaps not. Perhaps so. He's, what does he always have? A beard. A beard. Yeah. Long hair. Uh, but you've, you've seen this, that uh, perhaps in, in other cultures, they will imaginatively um, picture him in different ways. In African-American cultures, he's often pictured as black. I've seen it in, in Haiti and in other countries. When I was in Thailand and um, Southeast Asia, you'll see Jesus depicted in more of an Asian way. Is that inappropriate? No. I don't think so. Jesus truly is. I mean, <clears throat> it would be inappropriate to the extent that they think, well, he's just a waxen nose, and we can depict Jesus however we want. But I think it's appropriate insofar as we recognize he is God who has come incarnate in our flesh, And so we can't help but see him as our savior. None of those pictures get it perfectly right. And it's interesting in the scriptures how stunningly silent they are about how our Lord actually looked. I think the point is we don't need to know what he looked like. Yeah, Carla. There's an Alfred Burke carol at Christmas time. Some children see him brown as they, some children see him white, some children see him almond eyed. It's a great song. It's a great song, yeah. Um, because I, it gets at that idea that we're, gonna, we're going to see him differently. Now, I think there's also a place for um, more faithful historical ideas of it so that he isn't always, as, as some people have pointed out, 
in our society, in our culture, too many times he looked like he was, you know, Fabio, right? Somebody said recently. He's just this Swedish guy with the blonde hair and the blue eyes. Like, that's, we know for sure, culturally, that's not what Jesus would have looked like. And so, as I've mentioned before, you fellow fans of The Chosen, um, the, the Jesus that character that they have in that show is much closer to what Jesus would have looked like. I mean, just kind of perhaps goes without saying. But I do think that there's a power in being able to picture him, to set him before our eyes. And I have to share with you, um, when our daughter Ellie was just about to turn two, her godmother gave her a gift of this particular picture of Jesus. Wrapped it up. Ellie, not even two years old, opens it up, and just in her little two-year-old heart, she holds it like this, and she then kisses it. Kisses the picture. Now, of course, I believe that is because my daughter is super spiritual and very advanced. <laughs> I can't say for sure why it is, except that, you know, Lord, Lord says, let the little children come to me. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. But I think for any of us, such depictions really can have a, a devotional role to play in our lives. Consider Jesus. Look at that. Yes, Cindy. So, wherever it says this, and I'm, I don't remember where, but about, you know, we didn't see anything attractive. Yes. Jesus, yeah. Yep. You know, that he wasn't anything. So, why do we never um, see him depicted? Yeah, unattractively. Yeah. yeah. This is a good point. So uh, Sandy is, is bringing up from Isaiah 53. Okay. There, there was nothing about his form that, um, that we should be attracted to him, something like that. Um, and yet, I mean, this is hunky Jesus, let's be honest. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? Why is it? Yeah. I wonder if the Isaiah 53 is describing his person on the cross all beaten yes. up and bloody. Yeah. I mean, we, this past year, we had the showing of the Passion at the Garden Theater, and I mean, many of you have seen that before. It's hard. It's hard to look at. As one from whom men turned their faces, we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten. Yes. Uh, I, and so I do think that that's a big part of it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Leslie. Well, also, uh, if he's attractive, if you want to say it right, that way, right. We would be going to his looks. Yes, right. Where we want to go to his message. Yes, yeah, that's right. What draws us to him is not his physical attractiveness, but the attractiveness of the message, the, the power of that word. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, our, our boys, our two boys played soccer from when they were kindergarten all through varsity high school, and they had a picture in their room, which they shared, was Jesus hiking up his gown and playing soccer? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. I yes. think they still remember that. Yeah. <laughs> did who did a friend do that or did? You know, we I found it at the Christian bookstore. Okay. When they used to have Christian bookstores. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, pay up too. But put you on the spot as someone understands the power of visual faith, right? Yeah. And just how important it is for us to be able not only to hear with the ear, but also to. To see. It creates a picture in your mind that you can remember. Yep, it creates a picture in your mind that you can remember. Yes. Well, actually, Isaiah 53 talks about him growing up like a root out of a dry ground, mm -hmm. and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and right. no beauty that we should desire him. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean. I mean, so, I mean, that, 
I think I think I mean I think it's fair to say that Jesus in in his person was not um, just so uh, you know irrepressibly handsome that everybody had to be drawn to. He's a guy. I think he has a receding hairline here. <laughs> <laughs> Praise God. The Lord too endured male pattern baldness for us. For us men and for our salvation. Chip's not even here to make that comment. Thank you for doing that on his behalf, Matt. Yeah. But I think it tells us that we don't have to be perfectly beautiful. Oh, yeah. No, right? Jesus I, wasn't perfectly beautiful. Oh, we don't have to be. You know, gosh. Yes. I mean, that our, our beauty is, is found in him and that he brings us before the Father and the Father looks at each and every one of us and says, here's my beautiful child. Absolutely. Absolutely. Too sometimes beauty is connected with like your fine clothes, sure. and how you look. Yeah, Jesus didn't have much, right? You know, yeah, in that way. So, but I think sometimes um, I don't know, like a person isn't necessarily like beautiful or handsome as the world says, mm. but you want to be with them just because of who they are. Yes, and I think that was Jesus' beauty. Yes, exactly. There's a beauty that radiates from within, where you're like, I've got to be around this guy. Absolutely. But you know when he sent out his disciples and he said, don't take anything with you. Yeah. Just keep it simple. Just the clothes on your back and the sandals on your feet. Yeah. You know, they must have worn out and gotten dirty and sweat all Yeah. Pig pen. Going around, another penis reference there. Yeah. Yeah. People must have taken care of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's it's true. but I think it's very much liberating to recognize our acceptableness to the Lord is not because of our attractiveness and even our hygiene, perhaps. Not a reason not to take a bath. But uh, because he in the in the end he is the Word, yeah. and that's what matters. That's what, what matters. Comes out of his mouth is what brings power. That's right. Deliverance. That's exactly that's right. The point. That's exactly right. So then. Jesus, consider Jesus, the preacher says. Consider Jesus, the, who is uh, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Two significant terms, ways to describe Jesus. High priest, we've already talked about. It's interesting, is apostle, to refer to the Lord as the apostle. This is not the way that we, we commonly think of him. But here, number two on your, your handout here in that section, Jesus represents both God to his people and his people to God. So a high priest captures that latter part, representing the people to God, but also as apostle, he's representing God to his people and to the world. So to be an apostle is to be a sent one, a commissioned agent of the Lord. So as Jesus says in the, on the day of the resurrection in John 20, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Right? As well as Jesus being the high priest, the bridge between God and the congregation. It says in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus captures both of those. And as we're going to see here in just a moment, then the church carries on that identity as the, the priestly apostolic people of God. So hold that thought. Uh, let's go on to this analogy that uh, the preacher uses. So number three on on your handout, like a jeweler admiring a diamond's many facets, the preacher ruminates on the concept of the house of God. There was a a way of interpretation among the rabbis, even of Jesus' day, um, known as midrash. 
And the Midrash was very much like this. And preachers still today will use a structure that they uh, call a, a jewel or diamond structure. And the idea is that you have the, the text that has these many facets to it. And so you're like a jeweler turning it over in your hand right? to try and behold and appreciate all its different facets. This is what Midrash was. And so what you have in a sense here from the preacher is a, a kind of Midrash on a particular text of scripture. What's his text? His text is from Numbers 12, where it says this, God speaking to uh, Moses uh, and to the people. He said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The context there is when Miriam and Aaron were bringing these complaints to the Lord about Moses and the special role that he seemed to play. It says, Moses is faithful in all my house. Now, uh, there's a, a few different ways in which the preacher wants to turn over this diamond, this jewel of this word from God. The first way he's going to do it is to point out that, okay, God himself is the builder of the house. So it says, as Moses was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Okay, so here you have God as the builder, the master builder, the constructor of all things. Isaiah 40 says, Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the builder of the ends of the earth? And in the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word used here in Isaiah 40 as is used in Hebrews 3. God is the creator, but he's, he's the builder. The, the picture that you have is of like in the Lego movie, right? You've got the master builder, the one who is delighting to construct in his creation. What, you guys don't know the Lego movie? That's uh, no. cla instant classic. You really need to check it out. But here's God. He's the master builder of all things who delights in his creation, constructing it, putting it together. And within that creation, the building of all things, he has his house. Now, for those with ears to hear from an Old Testament kind of perspective, when they hear the house of God, what do they think of? Temple. The temple. And this is a phrase, it's not used a lot, but it is used in the Old Testament to describe the temple. The temple or the tabernacle is the house of God. It's his dwelling place. Now, the little subtle move that the preacher is making here is that now the house of God, as he turns over the, that jewel of that phrase in his hands, now what does he see as the house of God? The congregation, the people of God. You are his house, he says. You are his house. God is the, the builder of all things. Christ Jesus is the one now who has constructed this house of his church. And Moses was faithful in the house. And you can even look at that retrospectively and say he was faithful among the people of God, within the people of God. He served as a kind of steward. This is number, number four on your handout. Moses was a steward within the house, but Jesus is the son who is in charge of the house. This is the contrast that the preacher makes here. Moses was a steward. He is a servant. He had a role to play, but Jesus is the son, the one who's in charge of it all. And you want to see how that, that plays out in a, a compelling way. You look at the story of Jesus' transfiguration. 
Right? Because remember that moment when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain and who shows up there with him? Moses. Moses and Elijah. Figuratively or spiritually speaking, the law and the prophets, right? But they are the ones who have this borrowed glory from the Son of God. They come just as Moses did in the Old Testament when he went up and his face was radiant, but it wasn't because he was glorious in himself. It was because he was reflecting the glory. It's like he had a sunburn, right? Yeah, because he had been staring at the sun, now he had that, that sunburn. By the way, don't do that, I'm told. Staring at the sun, even on an eclipse, it doesn't make any sense. You can stare right at it, but they say that it's not good for you, so don't do it, guys. Um, as a kid, I still did it, but and here I am. So it couldn't have been that bad. No. <clears throat> Only, at a total uh, Only at a total eclipse for a few seconds. Okay, good to know. Um, otherwise, you need those glasses. You need the special glasses or the welder's mask. Yeah. But even at that, are you going to comment about staring at the sun? A great source of vitamin D. Okay, yeah, that's true. That's exactly right. Thank you, Matthew. In Jesus' transfiguration, um, the evangelists portray this picture, this moment. Moses is there, but he's the steward. He's not the son. And after a moment, the, the um, vision subsides, and then the evangelists say, the, they see no one but Jesus only. And they hear that voice from the Father, this is my chosen one, my son, listen to him. He is the one who is set apart. He is the one who is the son over the house of God and not merely the steward within it. He is that foundation that no one else can, can lay. That's, so here we have that, that distinctiveness. Again, within that um, community, did, was, were they tempted to think that Jesus was just another Moses? Perhaps. And so he's stressing his superiority. But here's what's really interesting. He does this not only to elevate Jesus, but also to elevate the church, the congregation, the people of God. So number five on, on your handout, the bottom of page three. The majesty of the Savior elevates the status of the church. He makes this interesting move from... In, fancy theological terms, we would say from uh, Christology to ecclesiology, from teaching about who Jesus is then to who you all are as the church. And we might summarize it just as the Nicene Creed does. One, holy, and apostolic. We are one. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of faith. Not just some voluntary association that you know, maybe you can come and be part of as it suits you. You're a family. And I, I say it a lot. When you become a member of the church, that's not just a manner of speaking. Uh, that term member is referring to the idea of the church as the body of Christ. You become a, we don't call it limbship, but we might, right? You know, you, you, you stand up and you say, yes, I want to be part of this fellowship. And we say, good, you're a thumb. <laughs> you're the big toe that we needed, right? Um, that now you are part of this body. You are one with us. Not only are we one, we are holy. We're called holy brothers. We are sanctified in Christ and set apart for God's purpose. And then finally, the church is apostolic, sent out into the world after the pattern of Christ. This is the identity of the church. And that the preacher, having elevated who Christ is, elevates us as well. We're one, we're holy, we're apostolic. Let me ask you, 
Does that identity depend on how many people are in the pews on a Sunday morning? No. It does not. Too often in this culture, we have a, this infatuation with bigness, with numbers. And I understand it. I get it. And it doesn't mean that there can't be blessings that come along with a, a larger size. But when it comes to the, the sight of God, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst, right? What makes us the people of God is not our person power, but the power of God's spirit present in us and binding us together as the body of Christ, right? That's absolutely the case. Um, and so then, constructed by Christ and held together by the spirit, the church talks and walks before God in freedom. The last verse of, of this section, verse, three, verse 6 Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That word there for, for confidence um, alludes to, has the connotation of speaking freely before God. That we have this privileged position. We have the capacity to pester the Father, <laughs> to come before him, to talk freely. That's the, who we are as the people of God. All right, so let me give you some concluding thoughts in, in wrapping up the significant section. Three things. First of all, as brothers and sisters of our sympathetic Savior, we cast all our cares on him. And from Isaiah 53, a passage we've already alluded to, he, the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That translation just doesn't get it. The, the Hebrew word yada. And you might be familiar with yada, yada, yada. Yada means to know. If you say yada, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know. And so yada, yada, yada. But it's a no, it's not just a head knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. For him to yada, our grief, means precisely that he has this inside-out knowledge of what it means for us to walk along this mortal coil. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. As brother of this sympathetic Savior, bring everything to him. Bring it all to him with that pester power. Secondly, then, as co-laborers of the apostle and high priest, we bring his blessing to the world. That great line from 1 Peter 2, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're his priestly people, the, the priesthood of the baptized. And not only that, you are the, the apostles, in a sense, of the Savior. Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Uh, too often when we think of the church as apostolic, we only think of that in terms of the, the purity of our doctrine, that we hold the teaching of the apostles. That's true. That's part of it. But we miss it if we don't capture also that apostolic character that, of being sent out into the world. There were some people here who might have put out a book called The Great Sending, I think, um, that has something to, to do with this. And this is very much the character of the church being sent out into the world as his priestly apostolic people. And then finally, as the body of Christ, we borrow our gifts and glory from him. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul riffs on that story, maybe doing his own midrash there of Moses ascending the mountain. He says, Now we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
Again, considering Jesus. Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are reflecting the light and love of our Lord. We are moons to his Son. John Kleinig says, Each congregation is a band of holy brothers, a community of those who have Jesus as their brother and the angels as their companions. Thus their main concern must be to consider him and what he provides for them. And then to share it with the world. Beautiful picture of the church emboldening us as the people of God. Next week, as we continue through Hebrews chapter 3, we'll maybe feel a little bit tired after all that. We're going to talk about a rest for the people of God. So, yeah, Matthew. Can I add one comment to Please. Uh, what he provides for the people? Mm-hmm. Part of that, I thought about, uh, I think it was John F. Kennedy that said, ask not yourself what your country can do for you, mm. but what you can do for your country. And mm. I think that follows along kind of the same path. Well quoted, young man. <laughs> ask not only what God can do for you. He gives us everything, but also then how we can go out, what we can do not only for God, but for our neighbor. Yeah, that's a nice connection. Thank you, Matthew. Very good, guys. It was great to be with you once again. Look forward to seeing you next week, if not before. God be with you.